Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. Uh, this is a Saturday, and so if something happens between now and Tuesday when we put this out, I apologize. Tammy apologizes. Andy apologizes. Our <laughs> guest, Rosie Ali, apologizes. You don't have to apologize for that, but you know, <laughs> if there's another coup or not coup, however you want to define it, if uh, fascism or not fascism comes over, you're like, why aren't they talking about it? It's because we recorded this on a Saturday because uh, the we have like somewhat busy schedules now, which is, you know, we were just talking about that. It's like, I don't really understand why, but it's happening. But Rosie uh, is a friend of the podcast and a freelance journalist from Queens, New York. Uh, she writes a lot about South Asia, the Middle East, South Asian Americans, is also working on a book about Islamophobia. She grew up in the Central Valley uh, in a working class Pakistani Muslim family and was a huge Warriors fan until they got into deep with Silicon Valley. So when, when did that end? Like, what, when did you stop being a, a Warriors fan? Basically when they moved to San Francisco. Oh, so like three years ago or two years ago. Okay. No, that was last, last year. year. Wasn't yeah. it? That was just yeah. last year, yeah. So you, you, you collected all three titles and then you're done. I'm done. It's just the, the timing just worked out that way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> are, you, are you a Nets fan now instead or...? No, I gave up on basketball. Oh. I, I remember, because um, I lived in the Bay Area before I moved to LA and then New York, um, and I just, re- like, I was here for the 2008, for the We Believe team, and I would go to Oracle, and it would be, like, half Filipinos, and, every, you know, it was, like, every, <laughs> it was great, you know, I, it was, like, the first team where I felt, like, I'm not Filipino, but I felt at home, you know, I was, like, these, I'll, I can indulge in Asian-Americanness for now, you know, <laughs> like me and all these Filipino <laughs> Warriors super fans. Um, and then uh, I don't really remember when the tech guys started coming in, right? I think it was probably like 2013 or something like that, 2014. The, the sale was 2010. 2010, okay. So maybe that yeah. was around Sorry, I know all, this, all these um, details. Oh. Yeah. But then it... That was the sale, though. The sale, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think those fans still went to the games before they moved across the Bay to San Francisco to that building I've never been to. I still haven't been to. But um, now I think nobody can go. The only person I know who goes is my friend who's like a partner at a corporate law firm, you know, and he has seats. Oh, and my other friend who's like Facebook rich. Those two go. <laughs> Everybody. Here. No more Filipinos. <laughs> Neither are Filipino. <laughs> <laughs> and if they were, I'd, you know, I would just call them class traders. I'd be like, what are you doing? <laughs> okay, so we're going to be talking to Rosie about the overturning of Trump's Muslim ban and how South Asian and Muslim communities feel about Biden. We'll also ask whether India's uh, Hindu, <coughs> I'm sorry, Modi still has a friend in the White House, right? And I think that that's, we've been wanting to talk about this for about a month now, I think. And we're really excited to have you on because, you know, this is, I don't know, there's just so much interesting stuff that we can discuss about it and i think it goes overlaps with a lot of stuff we talk on the show and there's a lot of different ways that to go about it and i think it's something that we actually haven't talked about on the show at all but first we should talk about something that you know is much i don't know i can't believe we haven't talked about this yet we've tried to talk about the last two shows (laughs) and it's like there's this kimchi war (laughs) <laughs> I have to say, I kind of, I loved reading about it. <laughs> Just made my day. Andy, do you do what? What's the background of this of this kimchi war? I feel like it's going to drive a stake be- between our podcasts between you, the yeah, Chinese guys, me and Tammy, the Koreans. And, uh, yeah. Well, there was an article. Um, you know, Jenny, the we, we, we episode Jenny sent me this article last week, um, and then Tammy found that there's a whole backstory. I didn't know the backstory, but the. The latest impetus was, you know, the uh, 
the food vlogger from China, Li Li Zixi. She does these like thirty minute videos of like making food from like the growing vegetables out of the dirt all the way until to your, to your kitchen table. Basically, <laughs> is this part? Is this which part are amazing of like? The, is this part of the Chinese propaganda? Like, are they doing like? Are I think she's like definitely Alice project, Wa- yeah. They're doing yeah, all, they, Alice Waters. Yeah. <laughs> Chinese <laughs> <laughs> they're yeah if you ever start watching them I, i've lost like hours of my life watching them they're movies. they're very they're so very how stupid. huge is she is she like huge huge You're, yeah i don't know i mean if you look at youtube it's probably like millions of viewers okay and youtube uh, is and probably, that's just youtube which youtube isn't huge. really her biggest platform either right because yeah yeah, yeah right it's well a, yeah. yeah like there's a billion viewers in china right and so youtube is like the non-china yeah. right um, viewers right um so she, that was the latest you know, Wait, what did she say? Though? Tell us what war. she said. She didn't say anything. It was just an episode about um, the white radish, right? Daikon. Yeah. Um, and as part of this 25-minute video, there's like five, like two minutes of her basically making something that looks like kimchi, uh, which is like Napa cabbage pickles with a lot of chili pepper, basically. And uh, and that and that was it. There's no... Actually, if you watch these videos, she never says anything. Or she's just like, it's just small talk with her, mm, gra- her okay. grandma with whom she lives um, and like the two small women eating like this massive meal every, every episode. <laughs> um, but this, but the, it triggered people because there's this article from December that Tammy found about, I guess there's a longer argument about like Korean viewers and also the Chinese media kind of provoking each other where I get the Chinese state and the, the state media uh, publication, the global times was kind of claiming Kimchi. Well, there's this. So the ambiguity, ambiguity is in Chinese this term Mandarin, this term pao cai, which I always just thought just meant pickles, um, but could be translated as kimchi. They were claiming like China's the best in the world and this originates with China. And the ambiguity is they could be saying is kimchi originates with China, but it's ambiguous enough to be like, well, no, we, we don't we don't necessarily mean Korean kimchi. We just mean pickled vegetables. <laughs> so there's a war <laughs> about who started kimchi. And yes. who has the best and, kimchi? And like, yeah, it's an origins. It's an origins war. But I think the real um, interesting thing, which I didn't know, was you know, like, but this is not surprising when you find out that Korea is increasingly importing their kimchi from China. Yeah. Is that true? China, like, mm-hmm. yeah. For have sure. you seen that K drama, wow. Tammy, about that woman who like gets uh, goes skydiving and then she gets caught in this crazy windstorm and she ends up in North Korea? Of course. <laughs> yeah. It's Wait, really what? good. It's so good. I forget what yeah. it's called. I think it's called like Crash Landing Into You or something. And she like, oh yeah, yeah. she's yeah. just like, she's uh, like this executive in this <laughs> firm. So and then good. she, she, so I don't know why she goes. I forget why she goes skydiving. But then it's like uh, Wizard of Oz, and there's this like tornado, which makes no sense. I don't think Korea has ever had a tornado. <laughs> if there has been, I apologize. But like, and then she gets swept into North Korea, and she falls in love with this like very handsome um, North Korean army officer who like basically has to hide her in his house but in that one you know there are all these scenes of the women in the village of north korea making kimchi together which you know i don't think they do in south korea in seoul at least anymore right so i guess a lot of it has to be imported like that sort of communal thing doesn't happen anymore um so i but i didn't realize that that much of it was imported from china yeah the article says like 50 percent. is that mm. right tammy 40 yeah 40 percent yeah wow, like, you can yeah like you can hear relatives especially like in the cities be like oh yeah all that store-bought kimchi is chinese or whatever and there's like a fair amount of like anti-chinese sentiment anyway right 
but the whole kimchi thing is just driving Koreans fucking insane. Really? Wait, so how long, how long, when, when did you all first hear about this from? I heard from Terry. Side, like... I, think I, saw, I think I saw stuff floating around in December and then was just like, oh, I don't know. How big is this? Right. But it keeps going. So, like... so it's only been one month. It's not like a year long. It's like several years or anything. I don't think so. But I, I feel like there's been earlier chapters of this. What? Because like everything started in China, also, so like it's very hard to make these like food origin. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like you're in the Sopranos where uh, Anthony Jr. asked Tony, "Is like I heard that they came up with noodles and uh, pasta in China." And oh, yeah. Tony goes, "Those people eat food with sticks. You think they could invent pasta?" <laughs> Such a good scene. <laughs> Um, I feel like there's a lot of that in it, amongst Koreans, right? Like with with Chinese, with or and then maybe also in China and Korea, they're like those you know those mongrel people keep getting invaded by Japan. You think they can invent kimchi? Like you know, <laughs> generally the the uh, I don't know. Uh, Tay, where do you come down on this? Do you care about it? Are you mad? Are you mad at the Chinese? I was like, what are they talking about? Are they talking about that stuff that they serve at Chinese restaurants? That's like cabbage and like a couple of Sichuan peppercorns and so yeah. So I I. I I can't speak for like the entire Chinese language, right? But just like in southern China or Taiwan, to me the word pao cai just sounds like pickled, like briny cabbage. It doesn't necessarily mean kimchi, but maybe in parts of northern China, closer to Korea, it does sound more like kimchi. And I think one of these articles refer like is that Sichuanese pepper, uh, uh, like cabbage. That's kind of what a lot of people refer to when they when they hear the the phrase because mm. pao cai literally just means like soaked vegetables oh. and. Um, I, and I also kind of have to believe, I think the article even says it, like, before, like, the turn of the century, Chinese, China didn't eat or make kimchi. So I think pao cai back then was just, like, a very neutral term, like, soaked daikon or something like that, right? Um, so I don't know. It's, it's, like, news to me that that this term means kimchi um, or means specifically kimchi. I think I would, if I were trying to say it in, in Mandarin, I would say, like, you know, Korean pickles or something like that. Uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't realize it would become synonymous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I don't know. May, I might be wrong. But they uh, serve that stuff at that place on St. Mark's uh, Szechuan Mountain House. Have you ever been there? It's pretty good. They have like weird. They have like yeah, frogs like... and shit. But they they'll give you a, <laughs> they'll give you they'll give you they give you this cabbage at the beginning. It's so good. But it's like yeah yeah, yeah exactly yeah, yeah. all sorts of like cold vegetables you it's get def- at the and beginning it's of these not, meals. It's definitely not. Korean kimchi, you no. know. So I think that we, I've never, I think we need to indulge in the food nationalism here. It's like the most annoying form that, of nationalism in general. There's, there's actually um, <laughs> so I have to shout out Jenny and my friend Nay were also talking about this. In Japan, there was like a controversy because in Japanese you would just translate kimchi as kimchi with the mu sound, but then and then the Koreans actually. Oh, Korean, like the whole country, I guess. <laughs> Koreans, Korea. Someone from Korea complained and was like, "That's not Korean kimchi." So in Japan, there's actually a distinction between kimuchi, which is like the bland or Japanese version of kimchi, which cannot be marketed as just like kimchi. Like the mu mu sound has like, there's a distinction. And I I think the the logic there is like Japanese people don't like really spicy food. So they always make it blander than Koreans. But Korean, a lot of Korean kimchi is actually not that spicy. I mean, there's so many different kinds. Like obviously we normally talk about like the one Napa spicy kind, but like there's really mild, like white colored ones. 
that are more similar to Japanese pickles. Uh, I think it's the Korean so kimchi. The Korean kimchi lobby is just like <laughs> the just Korean like, government is like so pissed. It's like scotch and bourbon, you know. I know like, what is, I don't understand yeah. why they're so mad about this. It feels like it's something that people here would would argue about, you know? Like it feels like you would get authenticity. Yeah, you get like some like uh second generation korean person being like i cannot believe that like they would ever cook like bulgogi <laughs> like this and you're just like can you calm the fuck down you know like what do you think people in korea <laughs> I, this whole theory is just like it's so we i think we talked about it on the show before but and, and i think it's true with every immigrant diaspora which is essentially that the food that you eat in the immigrant diaspora that you're in in that country is so out of date generally you know like because you're just eating yeah. the food that your parents that that their parents ate when they left that country, right? So yeah. there's this Korean restaurant in Berkeley called Berkeley Social Club, and I sent it to my friend, and it's it, they sell it's all sorts of wild shit, you know? Like, it's basically, there's no actually identifiably Korean stuff, but they put, like, kimchi and stuff in it, but it's a Korean restaurant. And, you know, it, I think that's probably closer to what a lot of Koreans eat now, you know? And you send it to white friends, and you're like, that looks so inauthentic. And it's, I think that's actually what Korean people eat. You know, it's like, it's like, what do, you, what do you want? You want like to dig a pot of kimchi out of the fucking ground? <laughs> right. <laughs> like eat, mo- eat temple. Temple food is very big now. Tammy, did you know yeah, that? Yeah. Um, yeah. I like Buddhist I food. food. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's because of chefs. No, but I, I actually, I, de- I don't know. I mean, I'm trying not to be a food nationalist, but I definitely empathize with the Koreans who are mad about this because like. There's not that many things that Koreans can be like, oh, yeah, that's Korean. Because there's been so much that's been, like, absorbed through the Japanese imperial period or, like, comes from China. Because obviously that's, like, the other <laughs> state. And so I feel like Koreans are like, this, don't take this one thing we've got. Like, and I totally – and I also feel like it's a little bit like when – like Israel tries to call like tabbouli like mm. Israeli oh, salad yeah. and you're like fuck that shit guys that is like a regional food yeah. you didn't make that up you imperial I pigs know. You know? So I, anyway, know. I, 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 feel, I, I feel a little bit of angst about this I ran into that once when I tweeted that I thought that shakshuka was bad and then it was like I was, I was just hounded oh, no. it was like I had made a statement about Israel Palestine and I, was like, I was like what did I just get into I was like what, what are you talking about you just dump a can of tomatoes and some feta cheese and put some eggs on it like it's not it's not anyway i'm sorry not yeah, a... you do not want to get into the middle east food wars those are yeah <laughs> that was like, that's so intense. um i love shakshuka that how are you gonna hate on shakshuka yeah, yeah seriously like i'm food. not into it it's you know yeah. really okay i feel like you're not making it right or something. no i, I, I followed the just said you just can't do those, so, yeah um, <laughs> I'm just not into it. It just it, it just tastes like tomatoes to me. Um, anyway, I, I apologize to our Zionist listeners if you're mad about. It. Um, all right, well, let's uh, let's on that note, our conclusion is that food nationalism is bad. It's a we're we're a big tent podcast and we're fine with the chinese saying that they have their own version of kimchi right T- tammy's like okay tammy is like grimacing right now i'm just trying to get us on i don't know and um i didn't I, I just don't well i mean the interesting thing obviously is just like every country in the world now has some beef with china yeah like we have tiktok india has yeah. tiktok um and korea has kimchi yeah <laughs> yeah korea <laughs> And there's like Huawei in the UK and Europe and, uh, you know. so like there's all these like sublimated political economic interests that like, turn into things mm-hmm. like fighting over TikTok and fighting over kimchi. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, i don't know why china's like kind of wild and out they don't like why are they going after kimchi i don't know that's like that's a little greedy weird rosie can i ask an ignorant question as you know somebody in the east bay i've noticed that i live around a lot of himalayan restaurants that serve what would be called Mm -hmm. indian food is there some is there a uh Mm -hmm. is there like some sort of discussion there because like you go to the Himalayan restaurant, they have like chicken tikka masala, and they have you know, which isn't even yeah, you know, which I think was infinite. Yeah, in you know, I don't, I don't even know if people really care anymore because there used to be a bunch of um, like Pakistani restaurants that would call themselves Indian mm-hmm. because it was just easy to market that way. Like, <laughs> white people don't know what Pakistani food is or what Himalayan food is, but they know chicken tikka masala, you know, yeah. and so right. it's just, in a way, it completely makes sense to me. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't, it's been a long time since I've actually heard anyone get upset about that, this among my South Asian network. That's yeah. a plus. Upset about that's what? That's a plus. Yeah. I, uh, I just think <laughs> Koreans get too mad about food in general, Tammy, you know, especially like Korean di- diaspora, diaspora people where I just get so exhausted with her. It's <laughs> like, I've been to Korea and people are just eating like those corn dogs that shit is authentically korean you know like do you have those those super fancy corn dogs and then they're just i'm just like what do you want you know you want do you just want everyone to eat just eat like super milky bone broth and you know kimchi and and like but is this but this isn't a diaspora story no that's why it's interesting to me if it was a diaspora story you know we would have just said three mean things and moved along but it's like it's it's much better now um okay transitioning um yeah so rosie we wanted to talk to you about a variety of things but the first thing that we wanted to talk to you was just about what happened on the 20th right which is that biden signed a bunch of executive orders and one of them was to lift the muslim ban um he's also taken a couple other executive actions on immigration not really quite sure what it, what any of it is right now but it does seem like DACA is being preserved now and that there is a sort of deportation moratorium for a while, which I think both we can, you know, objectively say are positive, right? Like these are things that we had hoped he would do on day one and that he did on day one. Um, Like what, 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 like what, what, what's your perspective on like what he's done so far in terms of immigration and especially like around the Muslim ban, which was, you know, such a huge event on four years ago. I mean, I, I was not surprised that he signed the executive order overturning the Muslim ban. He had to. <laughs> I mean, he, he said during his yeah. campaign that he would, and um, I don't think he could have uh, not done it. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'd be, I'm going to be, uh, I'll be more interested to know if he would actually support the No Ban Act uh, in Congress, which essentially is an iteration of, overturning the Muslim ban with harsher restrictions on a future president's ability mm-hmm. to enact it again. And so what the act would do is essentially say the a future president can't impose a ban based on religion ever again. And if for any reason a president does want to restrict people coming in and enforce such a ban, they would actually have to explain and use facts to explain and justify their reasons to do so to Congress, which is kind of amazing. Um, And it really limits what an executive can do in terms of national security. But that's why I don't think he would actually encourage it. Um, I'm going to be surprised if he actually pushes pushes it forward. 
This is a law that's been written already? Yeah, yeah. And it was introduced last year. Um, And it's still, I mean, people are still trying to push it forward. I have a feeling a version of it might be passed, but it's going to be watered down. I don't think it would be passed the way it's written. Do you know who who introduced it or who who brought the Um, Representative Chu and someone Mm -hmm. else I'm forgetting. Who's who's Chu? I should know this. She's from California. Okay. Oh, yeah. I should know this. Yes. Yeah. I, yeah okay. I, I'm glad he. <laughs> I, I. I. I don't know whether or not any executive will make a policy to restrict the powers of the executive, but you know, I. I was. I did think that if he, that was one of the issues that if he didn't do it on day one, that people should go out and protest again, right? Just because it was such a. It was like an actual moment of resistance, right? Um, millions of people in airports around the country protesting. And um, I don't know. I think that it was like it was the one moment that if you look back at the entire Trump administration and it's crazy that it happened on like day three or day two or something like that of the entire thing mm-hmm. where people really did seem to be like, we're not going to take this, you know, and even though it went through, it wasn't without massive resistance around the country and then the aclu became like the richest you know i don't know the like 17 <laughs> <laughs> it's like jeff bezos and then the aclu are the two, the two richest <laughs> organizations in, in america that's what it felt like but um but yeah i don't know i think it would have been catastrophic if you hadn't and then and then but then part of me is just like maybe yeah. people wouldn't have maybe people have just been so relieved that that um that they would have just been like rolled with it you know but I don't know. I think we have to give him some credit for at least doing it, right? Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. I, I, I definitely glad he did. And I was actually really surprised by the other um, executive orders he signed, speeding up the path to citizenship mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. undocumented immigrants. That was actually really shocking. Yeah. Why? Like, why is it shocking? Because I don't think he, I don't think that was a priority um, of, uh, among any of the you know immigrant activists um, at this current time because everyone has been so focused on deportations and detention and to you know it's one thing to preserve DACA which I'm really glad he did but to also speed up uh, the path to citizenship is pretty impressive and actually it's a it's a welcome sign why, why do you think he did it happened. or like what's like why why would the party be into this? Is it? I actually think. I mean, I don't know, and I do wonder if a part of it is because they have, you know, for all the faults of the Biden administration, that it has been moved a bit by mm. the activism of the last year, actually the last four years, but particularly the last yeah. few years. Yeah, I agree. I think he I think that there's part of him also that, you know, probably sincerely believes that this stuff is necessary and good, but also a larger part of him that understands that the best way for him to repudiate what Trump was on day one is to do is to do immigration measures, because those are the ones that I think emotionally upset people the most, you know, whether kids in cages, which we don't know anything about right now, but um 
And then, yeah. and then obviously COVID, right? Like those are the two things that he needed to do completely. Totally. Everything else can be totally the same, but as long as he doesn't put kids <laughs> in cages, as long as he doesn't ban, you know, people for, you know, for their religious beliefs and as long and call them all terrorists. And as long as he, you know, as long as he does something about COVID, then I think people will be pretty placated. I don't know. I will just say like, admittingly, I, I was pretty placated by it. You know, I was like, oh, <laughs> and then I thought, yeah. <laughs> There's some good executive orders. Go play video sure. games for the next two months, and then I'll resurface and figure out what's going on. You know, but I wasn't, I wasn't like, you know, it, it, it alleviates some of the stress, and I think that maybe that's what he wanted, right? Yeah, like he wanted, he right. wanted people to believe that something had turned over. And path to citizenship, I think, is a type of thing where if you're like, we're going to build a nation of immigrants, everything that these people said was wrong, then that's like a very, you know, that's like an easy thing that I think most people, if you look at any of the any of the polling vast majority of people, even people on the right agree that this is like a good thing to do. You know, it's a popular policy. So why not? Why not put through a popular policy? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I, although I hate to be a Debbie Downer, but one of the things that, <laughs> you know, really, I, I think he won't, he won't actually look at is um, one of the reasons why so many refugees are coming to the U.S. in the first place and the U.S.'s role in yeah. facilitating that. And you know, they're, really? they're like, when are we actually going to have a hard look at our foreign policy in Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria and Yemen, which is where so many of these refugees came from, the asylum seekers are coming from? I, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. I am very worried about what's going to happen at state. I mean, obviously, it'll feel better than what's happening and, you know, what's happened during the Trump administration. But but yeah, I agree. This whole and even the language of like the the partial dep deportation moratorium to me was really fascinating because basically it kind of restates and complements the Obama era policy, mm -hmm. which was like, oh, we only deport people like who are criminals mm -hmm. and things like this and kind of doing the good, bad immigrant thing again. Um, and we're going to kind of return to this more humane policy. And, you know, and so the the speeding up, I think, of the citizenship does move things better, you know, to a place that's better than what we had under the Obama administration. But for the most part, we're going to just see like a recapitulation of our foreign and domestic policies under him. So we need, yeah. how are we going to get to something a little bit better? It's just like real challenge, I think, for these years. Yeah. It's like, who is the, Who are the people who could push him on foreign policy? That's something that I've kind of been thinking about because obviously, I, Rosie, yeah. I agree with you. And the only barrier I see to it is that because of the because of the pandemic, that it's it's just going to be so hard to get that through to anybody, you know? Like totally. if you just think about it in terms of like where we all work, except for Andy, like but in the media, right? When could you get a foreign policy story through right now? Never, never. You know, it'd be very hard. It'd be very hard, you know. And and uh, I I think that that you know the media is not everything, and obviously like. Washington operates on a different wavelength, <laughs> but that is that it is a reflection, I think, in some ways of what some people care about, you know, and, unless you're talking about like the styles or something like that section where it's like everybody knows who Lena Dunham is, you know, <laughs> or just like, yeah, I guess so. Or but Fred Lebowitz. It's funny you say that because yeah. like, it's, 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 it's,
I thought it was I know. I thought it was Annie Leibovitz. I thought they were the same person, and I was just like, I was like, I don't know, like you know. Who's Annie? They thought it was like Annie Leibovitz and Fran. <laughs> <laughs> like, I have no idea. I don't even. I still who like it, so she is like some. Anyway, we don't have to go to it. Um, it was like a, I don't know. There was a Netflix show. Is that is that why she's famous? Because I watched Netflix it. Is it good? Oh. I watched. I watched an episode. <laughs> I've been expert now. Yeah, it's I. She yeah. I don't know if you guys want it. Basically, she's like. This New York person who's famous for being famous. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That sounds like a good I can job. figure it out. Um, I, well, so my thought was like, basically, like, our big, our, I think the people that, people's main fear, and I think it is that domestic immigration stuff might improve, but that we're just going to start a bunch of wars, right? And um, there's already alarm bells going mm-hmm. off because troops are moving around already and people don't know exactly what that is. But like, what is, what do you think that that is a, do you think that there are people who can push him towards the type of thinking that we think he should do right now? Like, and who would that be? Anyone can answer. I, I, I'm sincerely asking. I don't know. I don't know the answer to this yeah. question. Uh well, I don't know. Rosie, I'd be curious what you think. I mean, one thing I was just going to mention is this kind of movement around this new thing called the Quincy Institute, mm-hmm. which is a sort of nonpartisan kind of very strange animal that's basically trying to consolidate like right, left and libertarian thinking against the, for- the forever wars. Like that's basically their main policy objective. And a bunch of the people in that institute, you know, it's a mix of academics and foreign policy wonks. Um, had been in conversations with like the Bernie people, like if Bernie had won, they would have been in his administration in state and the National Security Council. And I think they've been doing a lot of interesting work that sort of, um, you know, if they if they were listened to, if their white if their policy papers were read inside the government could be really positive. But because basically their one message is we need to end the forever wars and we need to have like non-military solutions to foreign policy problems. And so that could really, I mean, I, I've actually been very hopeful about them. Um, but yeah, I mean, Rosie, I know you've reported a ton in the places we have our forever wars. So, I mean, if you have thoughts on like what we can do to push Biden. Yeah, I actually really uh, like and appreciate what the Quincy Institute is doing because they're a much needed voice in this, especially in the DC circles. Because um, we're in our 20th year of the Afghanistan war. That's yeah. That's insane. Yeah. That's, absolutely insane um but it's it's funny you know jay that you say like okay we're in the middle of a pandemic who's going to care about foreign policy and to me they're so closely intertwined actually this is this year really just for me crystallized why it's important for americans to pay attention to foreign policy because we in the middle of a pandemic, we managed to spend like another billions of dollars to give to the Pentagon, to give to Saudi Arabia and invest again in Afghanistan and Iraq and so forth. Um, somehow we have the money to do that, but we don't have the money to pay people $1,000 or $2,000 each in relief. That's just nuts. Um, and then the other side of it is that all those tanks and all those uh, military equipment that we sent mm. over there are coming back and they're actually being used on the streets against protesters. Like we saw them out on the streets um, this summer. Yeah. And totally. I, I just, um, <clears throat> I think we really need to push, uh, you know, what the Quincy Institute is doing, what, uh, you know, Bernie's foreign policy team was really good about uh, pushing for an end to forever wars. 
And then on top of that, I do think that the left is just missing a coherent idea of what foreign policy should be. I, I think the right has been really good about that. I don't think the left has a very good vision. Yeah, what would it even be? Um, what is the like? What what is this sort of fragmented and contradictory vision of foreign policy that the left is putting out there? I don't know if I could well, even articulate it. Like it, um, it seems. But what is the right wings? Because they're also because the Trump administration was not about starting Bush wars either. Uh, he would say that, but he actually so. was quite an interventionist. And he okay. he increased the numbers of airstrikes in Afghanistan. He increased the number of troops um, in Syria. It's, it's, he, yeah. And it's just supporting, like, I guess their friends in the military industrial. Right. Yeah. And, and yeah. supporting the Gulf countries, too. Yeah. Right. The Gulf country. Yeah. I, I guess there's the, I mean, I, I, I do look to inspiration in some of the left activist groups who do anti-war organizing, like the War Resisters League, or if not now, when, um, you know, because I do think that, and maybe some of the left veterans groups, too, that are doing a lot of activism. But mm-hmm. I guess, I mean, honestly, that the message that's like a, all of those groups have in common is basically just what I said that I think Quincy is pushing for, which is like end the forever wars and like less military funding. And and also, I think like, you know, trying to connect these conversations around like, why do we have no welfare state? Why do we live in an austerity country um, with the forever wars? Like, obviously, there's such a huge connection, as, as Rosina was just saying. But but yeah, how do you like make that a marketable strategy that people can like march on the streets? Yeah. You know, for when we're stuck in like interminable wars that are far away is like a super hard organizing question. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, last, this time last year, we were actually about to enter a war with Iran. And it, it, so much has oh happened this year that we forgot. But yeah. uh, the only <laughs> reason we didn't was probably because Iran didn't actually strike back at us. <laughs> um but I remember this time last year, there were movements in the DSA thinking about um, an anti-war demonstration, which was really heartening to see that, you know, there, there would have been immediate movement if something had happened. Yeah, it's it's, it's so much has been organized around healthcare, And um, yeah, I think that maybe that should continue. But I, I agree. I, I, I'm still struggling to figure out what the left's coherent vision of any of this would be outside or or how i would state it you know um and so much of it is going to be discussed around immigration but you know perhaps that's not even right the the right filter to think about these things um i don't know i think most americans would not even say that we're at war with afghanistan right now you know it's like hard to (laughs) think like we are i thought we killed that guy (laughs) 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 um yeah, well, you know, maybe Tulsi can have a. <laughs> it was too I mean, bad that like the one person, the one candidate who was saying these things, right, was uh, was Tulsi Gabbard, and I I do think that right, like that that was the last. She's the one. I don't know. I think so, or at you least know? the most forceful about it. You know, it was yeah, really sure, was yeah, the yeah. center of her campaign. You know, every debate she brought it to that. Um, it was like her campaign was like two things. One was like dunking on Kamala and the other one was like was talking about forever wars right I don't know yeah this is the second time I've said Tulsi but then she yeah but she was so complicated right because she was also like loves Modi and like holding hands with Assad which like depending on how you read that is either consonant with her anti-war stance or not but 
She was just such a freaking good, mess. Good transition, Tammy, because that's we also wanted to talk about Modi. Um, we wanted to talk about his support, um, you know, both you know in India but also here in the United States. That there is a seeming, and I would say that it is at least from my observation, it is not just one type of person who is in this movement. It also seems like there are young people. You know, it seems almost like in some ways there's a, like a reflection of the tanky movement here in the United States as well, where there's these people who are born and raised in the United States whose parents are probably pretty either progressive or, or like apolitical. And then they, they sort of take up this type of type of nationalism. You wrote a piece in the New Yorker, Rosie, about it, where you went and you talked to a lot of these people for like, a, you know, um, you know, and you went to it and it's full scene. You, you, we hear from them like, like, well, who, who are these people? Like, who are these who are these American South Asian um, supporters of Modi here in the United States who go to rallies and stuff like that? <laughs> Um, before we get into that, did you, I just want to, I don't know if you guys saw that, uh, in the January 6th, right, you know, insurrection yeah. riots in Capitol Hill, there was one guy waving an Indian flag. Oh, wow. There's a career flag, too. <laughs> oh, so many. Like, yeah. It's one Indian, though. There's always, there's one of everyone at those things. That's what I've realized. <laughs> always one of everyone. And it was so great because it already caused, like, kind of a, you know, Twitter uproar and, and some some BJP person in India was like, why is there an Indian flag here if we don't support this? <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? Wow. Interesting. Yeah, it just, it confused so many things. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't there a guy with a Korean flag there, Tammy? Yeah. Yeah, yeah like, that guy rules. <laughs> it's a very, very confused <laughs> individual, but... Um, but yeah, um, I don't know. Maybe it's you know maybe he's just drawing on the Korean um, tradition of overthrowing the government, which you know happens <laughs> happens quite a bit. So um, yeah, like what, so um, like who who are these people that you went and saw at this at this rally? Like who who are they? Yeah, so this this was an insane and surreal rally um, back in twenty sixteen, and it was this new lobbying group called. I think it were called um, Republican Republicans for Trump or Republicans and and it's terrible that I no longer remember. But it has and it, it it had just started and the guy who founded it is, you know, a really rich millionaire. And he was just gushing <laughs> after Modi and Trump and I think I want to say it's because it was held in New Jersey. Like so many people were uh, from the Indian communities in Jersey and New York, and they, you know, most of them were like what you would call like professionals, engineers, doctors, yeah. and then also a lot of small business owners. And there were two things that I just kept hearing over and over again. One is we love Trump because he was a businessman. And he knows how to get things done. My God. <laughs> um, and the second was, uh, we need to do something about Pakistan, and Trump is going to help us. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> first of all, I don't think you guys need any help with, right. you know, like Indian Pakistan know how to like stay at each other's throats, regardless of who's in the White House. Um, but the first one is always hilarious to me because it's it's the same argument that a lot of Modi supporters have used for. For Modi is that he's a businessman. He knows how to get, get things done, and mm. uh, you know he he knows how to grow our economy. And this is 
this is what they yeah. wanted from so yeah um, you wrote this article like uh, this came out four years ago or five during the campaign four years well, ago what's the uh like what's this has this grown you know is there is this sort of right wing uh you know south asian movement or indian american movement has it grown since then or is it because i i saw i saw flashes of it during this past campaign um and i wasn't sure if it was just like eight eight people or not you know um (laughs) (laughs) so this this picture is a bit complicated because so one, most Indian Americans voted for Biden yeah. um, in this election, mm-hmm. but I think that's because they voted against Trump. Yeah. Um, I think if there was a more reasonable Republican candidate, you would have seen more of an even mm-hmm. split. But this, you know, the Republicans for Trump or this lobbying group that I covered, they are new, but they are separate from a growing Hindu nationalistic group that has been around in the states for years for decades Mm -hmm. and that is growing um it is gaining strength and it has been for a while i mean they there are ngos there are lobbying groups there are people in their politicians they're um they're really effective in getting their messaging out and it's, I think it's been one of the undercovered stories in Western media is just how strong they are in pushing their agenda. Um, I think it was like maybe four years ago or five years ago, there was a huge debate in California about textbooks and how they, the textbooks were covering, history textbooks were covering Indian history. And um, the Hindu nationalist groups really pushed hard for a particular version of Indian history to be included in the textbooks. Yeah. And that was just, you know, one iteration of what what we see. Um, but they're, I mean, they've been around for, I want to say, a couple of decades. The, I mean, the interesting thing is um, a lot of young, well, so a lot of younger Indian Americans or South Asian Americans, like, their par- like they and their parents are going to be like liberal Democrats because that's just what most POC are in this country, but at least apparently I've heard from a lot of highest my friends. Percentage by far amongst all immigrant groups, like Indian Americans are 90, 90% voted for Biden or something like that. You know? Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. But a lot of them either if they do, if they can still vote in India or if they have relatives in India are Modi supporters. Mm-hmm. And in our heads, I think the gloss for a lot of Americans is, you know, Trump is, well, Modi is Indian Trump or, you know, or Trump is, you know, white American Modi, right? But there's this interesting, like, psychosis or not psychosis, like sort of like split, right? Where like people can both support the Democrats and also Modi, right? So do you have a sense of like, how how does that work? Because that sounds at first glance or at first listen, it sounds like a contradiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I actually know some people like that. Yeah, right. I do too, yeah. And to me, it just, it, to me, it's so obviously a contradiction. Um, but I think to them, it's this sense that Modi actually is good for India because he is improving the economy and because he's, in a way, false, what right? people, it's just false. <laughs> and um, in a way, he is considered, oddly enough, you know, a modern liberal 
yeah. <laughs> leader, which yeah. is also false for many reasons. But he's 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 done a very good job of maintaining this image of himself, right? He's like always hugging Zuckerberg. He's always saying, yeah. "Hey." I'm, and down the technology and I love everyone. <laughs> um, I, I do, I think the other thing too is that a lot of the younger generation know Indian politics from what their parents right. and their family members know. And a lot of the immigrants, Indian immigrants who've come here come from usually upper caste um, you know, middle class, upper middle class backgrounds in India. And back in India, they're quite privileged. They are not affected by the uh, Islamophobia or the, you know, um, like the anti-farm <laughs> farmers um, movements that we're seeing in India now. They're yeah, not yeah. affected by any of those. And so through that lens, it makes complete sense why they would support yeah. someone like Modi but be against Trump here. But would there be tension in like I don't know like a, you know, if there are a lot of South Asian diaspora and like some are from Pakistan or or Muslim just from India or some are Bangladeshi, and their friends are like Modi supporting families. Like, does that come out at all, or does that is it's just it's just not talked about for like second and third generation I, uh, diaspora? I mean, it's hard to know. I mean, I can't speak for everyone, but um, I know that for me, it definitely became difficult um, to talk about that with some friends because the Islamophobia has become so rampant and so violent uh, yeah. in both the US and India that it just became harder to overlook. Um, but are and, your friends like, they're just like, oh, I'm not Islamophobic. They just, they just, they just dismiss <laughs> it. Right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. So it, I have to, it is kind of a challenge to talk about those things. I think because, you know, 10 years ago, I wasn't really talking to some of my Indian American friends about politics like that. Um, I think the times have shifted so much that it's hard not to talk about it. And I actually am curious how people who are in high school or college now navigate that terrain. Um, yes, because if I was a Pakistani American now in college, how would I deal with that with an Indian American friend who yeah. a part of the I don't know. Do these they, like are there Hindu nationalist clubs in colleges and stuff like that now? Because it that's where I see a lot of yeah. the stuff expressed is really amongst young people, you know. And there's you know part of me is like, you're born here, you know, like why, like you know, it's just like why do you why do you care? You know, like there's all sorts of other things to care about, but it seems not to say that one should not care about international politics or whatever. It just seems strange that so many people seem to be very hardline about this one issue and i was wondering how that happened because like like is it social media is it is it their parents is it is it the escalation of you know is it just that now modi has been in power for long enough where people feel like they have to have an opinion of it is it is it some sort of reflection on american politics that's being processed through this like wh like wh what is the explanation for so many young people being being part of this movement yeah, I think there are probably a few things. I mean, one is a bit more longer term. Um, I don't know if a, a lot of people know this, but there have been quite a few Hindu nationalist groups in India who donate money, send, yeah. donate money to the U.S. to help fund student Hindu groups and yeah. help start Hindu, mm. Hindu chapters here. And I think that has had a longer term effect. Of, you know, they might they might not 
push explicitly Hindu nationalist ideas, but there is a sense of wanting to reclaim a Hindu identity. And that, I think, is that gets really complicated because what is a Hindu identity? What is a Muslim identity? What is yeah. any identity? And we're, we get really stuck in trying to define that. Um, and especially now, you know, this is not just, we're not just even seeing it among Indian Americans. We're also seeing it among Muslim Americans and white <laughs> white Americans, this need to define our heritage, whatever that yeah. may be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that speaks to a much larger bigger problem with perhaps how our neoliberal society yeah like koreans getting mad about who invented kimchi you know (laughs) what is going on in the world why is everybody so obsessed with this like tammy (laughs) like yeah yeah, i mean like i i reject all forms of nationalism except kimchi except kimchi (laughs) nationalism I'm, I'm going to be donating 10% of every article I write to, to establishing kimchi nationalists. The kimchi, <laughs> kimchi nationalist uh, clubs at, UC, at, at all the UC schools. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. You would have so much success at the UC schools around that, I bet. You know, <laughs> you could start a whole movement. You know, get us a bunch of podcast it's listeners. True. Like every Korean, is, every every episode is like, "Whoa, well, they don't do this shit with this radish." You know, <laughs> this is a genius. Oh, uh, well, okay. So then, there's there's also this question. Now we have a new administration, right? And we have um, and we have a litany of of you know, I think what we can very confidently say are human rights violations um, that have been put forth by by Modi and and we have a new president and we have obviously the old president who left who very much embraced it and said all stuff but he's a great guy you know like what what do you what do you think is going to happen with the Biden administration and their relationship with Modi I think it's going to stay intact I think they're going to have a pretty good relationship and you know Biden might wag his finger at Modi once in a while but nothing much beyond that is going to happen Uh, I mean, the White House already said that they have a close relationship with India, and also they're playing up the Kamala Harris being. Yeah, well, where, how does that fall into <laughs> it? I was surprised. I will say during the, I missed the entire inauguration because somebody that I'm I'm doing this job right now, and they they like scheduled this Zoom meeting for the inauguration. I was like, what are you doing? I missed the whole thing. But you know, seeing this stuff around it, I was surprised by how much was made of Kamala's. Indian American heritage. Like I thought I, I, and to the point where I was like, I just like, why are they, you know, like I, I don't, they, they seem, and I think that probably a lot of this comes from Kamala herself, right? She does not want to clearly, it kind of reminds me of Tiger Woods almost, right? Like she does not want to be defined as black, right? She does not want to be defined as only black. I think that she, this part is really important to her. And I, I wonder, do you think, do you see, foresee that having any, in fact, like, are they gonna are they gonna send her? Is she gonna be like the liaison to to India or something like that? Oh, for sure. Like, go, Wait, before like, go talk some, go I, talk Indian with them. You know, like <laughs> you can, talk Indian. Uh, you talk about lime pickles, you know, or whatever. Like you can do. Your own, you can do your own. <laughs> well, I I didn't see inauguration either. What what actually happened at the inauguration? Um, but they it. did she's just been <laughs> introduced like every time she is mentioned it's like she's the first asian american and the first uh black american vice president uh female vice president right. I, I i don't know that's just how that's how i've heard it have you guys not have, have you not had that same experience like it seems like 
Whereas before, when Kamala was San Francisco's uh, district attorney, which is when I was living in San Francisco, and then when she was senator, it was never mentioned. You know, like I, I feel like a lot of us just learned about that when she started running for president, and now it seems like it's such in yeah. the forefront. I wonder why that is. I mean, outside of you know trying to have her have a broader appeal, but um, yeah. I don't know. Do you think there's any like like you you do think she's gonna Andy? You think she's gonna handle a lot of stuff with with India? Uh, I don't know. That would make sense to me, but I don't know what Rosie thinks. I, I mean, I I actually looked this up. You know, like what what has she said about Modi in the past, and she more or less hasn't said much. And I think that's on purpose, right? And I think she's gonna not continue not to say anything critical. And uh, yeah, I mean, the int- I mean, I don't know. We talked about this a little bit with our episode, but like in in India itself, there isn't necessarily an acceptance of Kamala because she's you know she's American, she's half black. And so for a lot of um, hardline Hindu nationalists, she's, they don't accept her. Right. Um, but, you know, for, for, but for political reasons, I'm sure like Modi and the BJP will totally embrace her as like their sister, you know, from, totally. from, from another continent. <laughs> there must have been some excitement in India about Kamala being the vice president. Right. Like I think there, there has, is, but there there's, a to toxic, there's a lot of toxic, there's a lot of toxic stuff too. Yeah. It's like, yeah. uh, like when Heinz Ward won the Super Bowl MVP <laughs> and Korea finally accepted him as being Korean because he was a Super Bowl MVP. But it was meaningful because uh, yeah. people were actually excited. It was the first time that Korea, that Korea has ever acknowledged somebody who's half black, kid of a GI, you know, and, and half Korean. And yet at the same time, you're like, fuck Korea, you know, like, um, like I know what you say about him behind his back. But at the same time, you know, a lot of people are excited, you know, like people like my parents were like, you know, crying and stuff because uh, this toxicity has been going on so long. Not even toxicity, just fucking racism, you know. Um, I don't know. That's total aside here. But um, I don't know. It's kind of the, it's, it's been interesting to see how Kamala is, Kamala is discussed. And um, yeah. Yeah, but I think that goes back to what you were saying earlier is this uh, need to present themselves as so different from Trump. Yeah. You know, Trump was pro-white, pro-just as, and, and they just, the Biden administration just wants to be as diverse as possible. Yeah, they got a twofer there. Yeah. 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 <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it, was, it was kind three, of, three wasn't it, Terry, I thought this great advice. Yeah, three, three fur. Yeah. <laughs> I felt this great embarrassment where um, I felt, did you see, Kevin, did you see all the Asian groups were really mad because he wasn't going to put an Asian person in the cabinet and they were, uh, no, they were I didn't see. Was Kamala, you know, it was kind of, it was kind of obvious they didn't <laughs> yeah. count Kamala, you know, like what they want is they want like fucking, you know, they want like Kevin Wynn or like, uh, you know, like, I don't know, like Andy Andy Kim or something like these aren't real people. These are just the stereotypical Asian names in my Andy head. Andy Kim is real. He's in he's a Georgia oh, yeah. senator. Okay. <laughs> Daniel Kim or Grace Grace Lee. You know, they they want one of those people in there, you know, and I I don't think that they were counting Kamala, which, you know, Grace I found Lee. to be I found to be ironic. Um all right, so the last thing we're gonna talk about here, which you mentioned before, Rosie, which is, you know, like the we just wanna talk about the, you know, who who South Asian Americans are at this point and how they sort of come up with, and I'm talking here mostly about young people, second generation people and how that, where the, where their politics lie. We wanted to talk about this uh, piece that uh, Arun uh, Venugopal, is that right? I, okay. Uh, he works at a New York City's uh, WNYC. He 
published a piece in the Atlantic called The Truth Behind Indian American Exceptionalism, which is about sort of South Asian model minorities, right? And the argument that he comes out is that he grew up in Texas and he said it was filled with like lawyers, doctors, engineers, I guess maybe not so much lawyers, but doctors and engineers never really thought about <laughs> the politics or the economics of these households. And then he goes back in time pre-1965, like we do on our podcast, and he's talking about Erica Lee's book, The Making of Asian America. And he talks about how early Indian immigrants came as laborers and faced discrimination, how the question of what race they were and whether they could be naturalized went up to the Supreme Court a bunch of times. And so like, it's this split that we talk about, I think, quite a bit, which is, um, you know, there's pre-1965 and there's post-1965. Immigration patterns are completely different. It's an entire group of different people that came over. Um, yeah, like, what do, what do you think about this? Like, what, like, what do you think about his sort of attempt to split the diaspora in that sort of way? Yeah, I, I actually really appreciated what he was trying to do and kind of laying out this history, but I wish he would have gone further. Um, because I'm, you know, it's it's great that he's outlining why there was a split, but it makes a difference um, in terms of the politics we engage with if you came before 1965 and after. Like the people who came before 1965, like he's right, you know, so so many Indian farm worker farm workers and laborers, they were coming to California and New York, and they couldn't bring their wives, so a lot of them were marrying you know, a lot of um, Black Americans. And in, in actually in Berkeley, they started a, a radical movement called the Gather Party. Yeah, yeah and, which is incredible. Um, and they had a very specific idea of the politics that they were pushing forward. And the diaspora that came after 1965 was markedly different. Um, you know, it's really telling that Arun didn't realize the history of it until much later in his life because it wasn't something that was discussed in the household because it didn't need to be, right? And I, I don't know anything about Arun's household, but I, <laughs> I mean, in, in general, like if you come from a place of privilege in India or another country, if you're coming here, you're not, there's no need or desire or incentive to actually engage in um, the politics of a structure of power that just, you know, <laughs> that probably reinforces certain types of oppression. Um, I think that there's, I mean, to be quite honest, like a lot of Indian Americans are pretty <coughs> impressively placed here. You know, I've, I've had some Indian American friends say to me, we're essentially white because of the power they do enjoy. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, there is a certain privilege that they have uh, that that they can continue having. It's not, it's not, a, <coughs> I don't know if, you know, I don't know if they are losing any solidarity with you know, Black Americans or other group, marginalized groups in the U.S. because I don't think they had any solidarity with them to begin with. They didn't need. Yeah, and they also had no overlap, right? Like, and that's what's exactly. different between them and other immigrant communities from Asia, where it's like, um, you know, this is like basic, just you know, 
history, which I'm sure Andy's very familiar with, is just like <laughs> if you're if you're from Korea, you have interactions with and you start a store in in Watts, right? You have interactions with the black community, right? Like you you're not in that community, but, or you start a wig store, let's say, or you start you know black beauty supply store, like so many so many Koreans did. That's an interaction, but it does seem like the Indian diaspora post-1965 were so professionalized and so educated that there is almost no interaction with, with, with the black community at all, right? And so um, it almost flo- it's almost like a floating community that goes straight, you know, it skips the, the generation that, you know, Koreans come in, they work in dry cleaners or whatever, and their kids go and become doctors and engineers, right? And it seems like a lot of the Indian diaspora... I don't want to speak. To, look, I know, understand that. You know, what, I'm just going to say it because I actually don't know any counterexamples in my own anecdotal life. Despite knowing many, many Indian people, like all their parents are doctors. You know, they're all engineers. You know, <laughs> they're not like my uh, yeah, yeah, they're not like my uncles who you know and aunts who like are you know worked uh, in restaurants and stuff. A former, like a former boss just assumed that my parents were doctors too. Just assumed. <laughs> um, but it's it is interesting because that is that I think that does account for a huge difference in the way in which the politics of that first and second generation are formed. Right. And that it does make sense in that way that a lot of Indian Americans basically become ha, reflect the politics of white liberals. Um, and that uh, because that's the people that they're around, you know, you you yeah. become a, a doctor and, you know, like most of the other doctors are going to be Joe Biden supporters. Um, right. And yeah. that I think. Yeah, though I so what, I had some frustrations with this piece, and I think one of them was like that there's kind of an erasure of other South Asians in this story. So like, yes, even like in that like the Texan citadels of like Indian wealth, there are like Sri Lankan, Nepali, Pakistani, Bangladeshi workers who serve them, who are their domestic workers, who are working in restaurants that they go to, and they're surrounded by all these people. And there's like, I mean. I know, again, I'm not like trying to blame like Arun himself, but like the idea that people wouldn't like process that or think about that as like, you know, a community yeah. that, you know, they have solidarity with or or, or at least are, as, as, you know, visually have like similarities with here in the U.S. is like very weird to me. And I think the essay was like quite narrow about that. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because there's another wave of South Asian immigrants that came that he doesn't mention, as you were saying, that came in the late 80s and 90s. And Uh, they actually make a, a, they make like, you know, uh, they're usually low income, working class. Yeah. Um, They're in dense urban neighborhoods. And they're the ones who are actually doing a lot of work around tenant organizing or um, labor rights. And I don't think that it's groups with show solidarity with each other yeah why was there a new wave in the 80s and 90s um that's a good question i think there was a i actually don't i i don't know i don't know if there was a certain policy that opened the door um yeah i mean the piece go ahead so, i mean one, one thing i was thinking was i agree with you all of the piece it's interesting just because he kind of starts with this class i don't know revelation you know but then mm-hmm like immediately runs away from it and by the end end of the piece it's back to like where i'm a poc and i have solidarity with POCs, which strange in a way i mean i'm not saying like he himself is like this but like to get back to like jay's earlier question about like well why do what is the appeal for young south asian diaspora to fall back into indian politics isn't so much like they actually care about what goes on in the world it's really a reaction to their immediate surroundings 
right? In some ways, which is to say, like, I feel alienated in a predominantly white society without, you know, social bonds of solidarity with anybody else. So you retreat to what you think is like the homeland or some sort of essential identity. And so, you know, I'm not saying like him or like any of these like well-meaning, I'm sure very well-meaning liberal South Asian diaspora are like this, but like there is a certain overlap between that sort of um, race reductionist type of response and nationalism right yeah and, and like like right nationalism. absolutely yeah and, i mean it's and so you see all forms of it it's just interesting to me that within the indian diaspora it is about supporting like hindu nationalism whereas i would say within other diasporas it's like you know getting really excited about a world cup team or something like that you know no like not not even saying it as a joke or getting mad about food which is the number one thing that it really is like that's what all this stuff is about it's like these they feel alienated they want the one thing that they understand about korea or china to be authentic to them that they can lord over with you know their their the people that they're around and that ends up being like this 1970s vision of like what that authentic food is. And it's like, I don't know, it's kind of heartbreaking in some sort of way. But at the same time, you're just like, come on, it's just food. You know? well, this is- <laughs> no, it's not. It's never just yeah. food. <laughs> yeah. Every, everyone everyone well, eats fact. a form of taco. Every, every culture has a dumpling. <laughs> I have this friend who, who, who texts me that all the time as a joke. Every time it makes me laugh. And he's like, he's, he's like this white guy. And he just, he's like, he knows that it makes me laugh. He's like, every, Jay, every culture has its own dumpling. <laughs> um, have you guys done an episode on food? On just food politics? I think you guys need to. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why I keep going back to it. It just drives me insane. Like, you know, like, there's, I just don't get it. And I feel like it's not something that we should get mad at. And, you know, yeah. yeah, I do think like, you know, this show, we don't talk too much about South Asia, but like, or <laughs> this is like our first episode about it. But, um, Second. Second. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> first episode in like three months. And, and we did talk about Kamala two months ago or yeah. yeah. But I do think, you know, for those, you know, for listeners who come from other diaspora, like I think Modi is really interesting because it's like sort of the worst case scenario. Yeah. And like we and you should pay attention to it because, you know, one of our mutual friends, Rosie, tells me all the time he takes Trump very seriously, more seriously than he thinks other left liberals take him because he saw what happened in India. Whereas like it was kind of a joke or just kind of this like distasteful thing that was happening until suddenly the, their version of the Democrats, like the, the uh, Nationalist Congress, right? The, Na- the Nationalist Party just kind of collapsed and then the BJP just took over and they just have a stranglehold on politics in that country in a way that made a, a lot of people in India kind of regret not taking more seriously before. And so a lot of the things I think we, you know, we joke about Trump, we joke about like Chinese nationalism, Asian nationalism, but part of me, I'm starting to, I think, I think maybe the one, the insurrection made me start to think like, yeah, maybe we should take this shit more seriously because it's kind of a joke. No, I do think not- we should take it seriously. I mean, it's yeah. like, you know, it's, I don't know. I, the more I, it's from last week's episode where I think we were like, we should be worried about it, but we shouldn't, you know, assign too much political importance to it. We should just say that these people are scary. I don't know. They just keep getting scarier every single day where I'm just like, Jesus, how many people are there like this? You know, and, and how, how melted have their brains been by this stuff? And, um, and they're never going to stop, you know, like, and so you either, and imagine like Ted Cruz was, he was supporting it and he's been representative for how many years, decades? Like, yeah, that's, yeah. he's you know, like some Princeton, yeah. you know, like pretend populist, but he's a senator from Texas too, you know, and, um, 
great. Like a gajillion. The only person richer than the than the ACLU is is Beto. Is Beto O'Rourke? <laughs> that didn't that didn't work. Oh, it's, it's John Ossoff is the richest man in America. That it's Jeff Bezos, and then it's that it's Beto O'Rourke, and then it's like whoever's in charge of the ACLU. Um, yeah. So to wrap this up, let's just read the end of Aaron's essay, which is that in 2017, just a few weeks into the Trump presidency. Uh, Srinivas Kuchibota, an uh, Indian-born engineer, was killed at a bar in Kansas City suburb. The killer had shouted, get out of my country. Not long after, I found myself in an email thread with my dad and a few of his good friends, or uncles as we refer to them, all retired Indian-American doctors around the age of 80. They understood that the position of Indian-Americans was in many ways privileged and the threats were sporadic, but they were worried. The more noise we make, the racists will be awakened who may never have heard of Hindu of Hindus and their customs, wrote one. Fighting them alone may get us under six feet. The only thing to do, he said, was to lie low. Despite all their success and nearly 50 years of living in the United States, the uncles were reacting as if their Americanness remained uh, tentative and conditional. Like most of their Indian, Ameri- Indian immigrant peers, the uncles came from historically advantaged communities. This had helped them emerge from India's ferocious academic system, victorious, allowed them to leap across continents and flourish professionally, enabled them to isolate themselves in America's best and whitest neighborhoods. It did not, however, prepare them for a fight or the realization that they were not in this alone. So that is the end of the essay. Well, what do you guys think about this? Like this, this, this sort of call at the end, I would say, in some ways. I want to hear Tammy. You, you definitely have something to say. <laughs> you guys go ahead. I have Tammy. You go first. Go, was, go first. It just made me angry because I think, um, yeah. I mean, I I'm just recapitulating basically what I said, and Andy was talking about how the kind of denials of like certain kinds of class recognition in the story, and I think it's a little too tidy. This, you know, conclusion because basically he's saying like they're. I'm not saying that there's no hope for like rich people to be awakened to, you know, certain kinds of vulnerability and solidarity. Like, I think that's real. And I think we should organize toward that. But this, again, this remains like for him kind of a narrow awakening story where rich Indian people can realize that they too are vulnerable because of certain like race dynamics in the U S but it doesn't extend to the point where they're willing to like practice solidarity with like, with poor people and, you know, people of like many different colors. So I, I found like, it's kind of a very limited lesson at the end. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. It's, it's just weird because like, I would want to ask him like, what, well, what is the, what is the call to action? Like, what are you going to do? You know, like, um, just like, please don't shoot us type of stuff. Right. Um, and, and like, what, who do you think your allies are? You know, like, uh yeah and it's like a reality check like i'm sorry but like hindus because of the way that like hindu nationalism has gone in india are not like this like incredibly vulnerable population that needs to be like coddled and protected (laughs) either it's a little bit delusional on that count yeah exactly and it's also kind of ignoring the all the sick and um hindu cab drivers and uh you know just employees who were attacked after 9-11 i know that they were killed and they were yeah. brutally yeah, it does make it seem like this just started under trump and you're like you forget nine i bet like post 9 11 was not great for rn either you know i'm sure it wasn't right it wasn't good yeah. for anybody who who could be even partially mistaken for being like you know muslim but like i i think that it's uh yeah i i i i am 
I, I felt the same way, Tammy, and I just was like, when are we going to get over this? You know, like, when is it going to stop being that the mainstream media's, like, sort of examining of this is just through the lens of the wealthy who are making some vague call for solidarity that actually doesn't say anything, but also, and essentially, it's just a protecting of their own self-interest, right? And, like, how many times, like, I always think about, this isn't fair, and I hope he doesn't listen to the podcast, but I always think about it in the, in, in the frame of... Uh, that guy who did that Patriot Act show, what's his name? I forget. Hassan Minaj. Hassan Minaj. I always think about it. I was going to say Jeff Yang. I think about it in, in his, in, in the, uh, yeah, and Jeff Yang too, but like where I just think about it in that terms where it's just like, like I understand that you can say these words and you say them forcefully, you know, and you can outline a threat, but there's nothing beyond that, you know? I'm never going to listen to you. And I'm from the same fucking background as you are, dude. You know, like I would <laughs> yeah. like I might have actually worked on your show. at so, you know, like if things had broken differently, yeah. you know, but and, like I'm as close to you as possible and I feel no solidarity at all. And I think that that's the problem about it. Like there's no there's no there's nothing except sort of like a, we feel scared here. And can you believe that we of all people feel scared? And it's like, <laughs> you know, what? fuck you. <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> Yeah. Times are hard for everyone. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it it is weird how how and at, yet at the same time, you know what? I pre I I thought that this like uh, like Rosie, you're saying, I felt like the outlining of this was an important thing to have in like a big publication, like the idea that yeah. that there are different types of people who come over and that they have different politics that are shaped by it, and I think that like it should be discussed. I just don't. I don't know how we break out of this idea that, you know, some people are worth protecting because they feel scared and they also have access to all these things. And those people don't seem particularly willing to break out of a lot of their ways of thinking. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's unfortunate. Andy, what do you think about it? I, I feel like you guys pretty much covered it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just like, but I mean, I think more generally, besides like, you know, if we're going to be more charitable, I think what's interesting is like this stuff is, it just kind of shows that like, a lot of this kind of, you know, like uh, sort of uh, like realization moment is underdetermined. Like it doesn't necessarily go the direction that we think it should go. It could go in many different directions. It could lead to a reinforcement of like racial identity or it could lead to like, an awareness of class politics for the first time in your life or it could lead to you know you can go any sort of different directions with this stuff it's not just like oh the moment you realize you're rich and that's you know and that's privilege that doesn't necessarily um it doesn't go anywhere necessarily and i think that's 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 i think that's interesting because i feel like we've had this privilege talk for years and people should know by now it doesn't necessarily go anywhere Uh, Mm you have to do more than that yeah. yeah yeah it's the i do think that it's falling apart a little bit like privilege yeah. talk like i think that it's less has a less that and cultural appropriation i feel like are two things that are not discussed as much as they used to be like, people are out there but they're just like increasingly silly when they do it yeah yeah <laughs> that's, that's especially cultural appropriation that one seems like we decided to not care about it as much anymore right am i wrong like the mahjong oh yeah that's right the whole mahjong thing but you know what i i was just like whatever maybe it's just me maybe i'm over it but like you know although i was never really i never really cared that much about it but like the mahjong thing you're right in (laughs) like that was the whole thing 
Uh, but I didn't really care. Either, yeah, the, like, uh, I don't know. Who cares? Some white woman wanted to make like a fucking bedazzled Mahjong set. Like, who gives a shit? I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. More power to them. You know? <laughs> I don't know. It's, Mahjong nationalism should be the next one that we we should do a whole podcast on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Well, is is there anything else that we should talk about? We're at a minute. We're an hour and fifteen minutes. That's a good time. For, like that's a good length for the podcast um rosie is there anything that you want to plug or is there anything that you want our listeners to to know <laughs> uh keep listening to you guys you guys are amazing what is what you're working on um well i'm working on a book right now on the history of islamophobia um you know just in case people thought that islamophobia started in, after trump um and i'm working on a couple articles too that's the right right yeah um and uh yeah i think that's it thanks for listening to our show um we are here every week and uh we forgot to read a listener question this time we could do it if you want do we have any on do we have any like on uh on deck here i didn't prepare okay um Maybe next week we'll do a bunch next episode. week how about that um and uh but keep sending them in like we really do appreciate them we have a whole channel in our group chat where we read them over and we discuss them and you know um yeah i don't know it's really the lifeblood of the show so if you want to get in touch with us it's uh time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com or you can uh, tweet at TTSG pod. Our DMs are open, or you can DM any of us, and we will get to it on the show. Um, Rosie, thanks for being on, and uh, we'll see you in the end. We'll see you next week. Thanks, guys. Okay, so don't close your Thank you.